Growing in God's Word and learning how to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. What happens when somebody hurts you so badly that you're just like in a fog? You just can't believe that that much pain come into your life. Bad things happen in life. We all know that. People can do terrible things to us as well. But does that mean that God is not in control? Can you, in those moments, come to the place where you can say, God is still in control? I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to Crosswalk. As we continue our series in the book of Daniel, Pastor Clay is taking us today to a special part of chapter 8. If you were with us last week, you may remember that the first part of Daniel chapter 8 dealt with the prophecy of the ram and the goat. God showed Daniel how the empires of Medo-Persia and Greece would rise up. This week's prophecy takes us to a very dark time in the history of the nation of Israel, and we come face to face with one of the most evil men in the world. You're talking about a guy with a serious God complex. What he did to the nation of Israel has been really almost unrivaled throughout all of history. But as we'll hear Pastor Clay say today, just because evil men do evil things, it doesn't mean that God is not ultimately in control. Thanks for joining us this week. Now here's Pastor Clay. It's my birthday this week, and uh, by the way, it's also our our anniversary. Uh, Cindy and I will celebrate 35 years uh, tomorrow, 35 years tomorrow. Thank you. Thank you very much. I I praise God for her. I really do. Um, I I, I can say I am so much more in love with her now than than 35 years ago. I honestly can say that by the grace of God, and just that's how the the love of God works. It's the great thing about the love of God. It, it, It never runs out, and so as a consequence of that, if you do marriage Based on the love of God, it should grow deeper and deeper and deeper as the years go on. And I can tell you, I, I would not, uh, not be anywhere without her in my life. And so I'm so grateful for my wife. But uh, it's my birthday this week uh, as well. And my wife graciously uh, took me yesterday to a golf galaxy down in Cary uh, to look for a golf club that, that I, you know, said, well, okay, well, that would be nice for my birthday. And she said, what do you want for your birthday? And, well, a golf club, that'd be nice. So we go down to Golf Galaxy to look for this golf club. Um, and so when we left there, <clears throat> we were going to go to uh, Golf Smith uh, on Glenwood Avenue to see if they had the club that they didn't quite have the right club there at Golf Galaxy. And so, so those of you that have made that drive down 440, like from Cary to Glenwood, you know that when you get off the, uh, the 440, that, that Glenwood Avenue, Crabtree Valley exit, you know how it kind of exit and then curves down around the curve and then you come down and there's a red light and, you know, in Glenwood. Y'all know that, what I'm talking about? I was going a little fast. I was going a little fast as I came off of that exit because... Um, uh, it's a lot of times you come down there, the light is, you know, it's green and it's just turning red as you get down there. And so, so I was hurrying to try and make that light, right? I'm on a mission from God. I've got to find this golf club. So I'm in a hurry. And so I'm kind of, I'm, and I'm, I was, I was going a little too fast coming down the hill and, um, the light turned yellow, a uh, significant distance before I got there, but I was just going. Uh, and, and so I kept going, and the light turned red before I got there, and I just kept going, and I, and I was going fast. And so the, her car bottoms out on Glenwood as I, you know, as you come down the bottom of the hill and go up to Glenwood, it bottoms out, and uh, I, I 
threw my wife's body violently around as I made this hard left turn as the, as the tires <laughs> squealed. And when, <laughs> when she composed herself, she said, don't ever do that again. You bottomed out my car, you made the tires squeal, and you ran a red light. And then she added, and if a policeman had been there, it would have been all over for you. M- meaning that, uh, for those of you who don't know, I have a perfect driving record. I've never received a ticket. I know you all find that hard to believe after telling that story, but I've never received a ticket. And so that's what she said. It would have been all over for you. And I said to her, you're right. <laughs> I really did. I really, because I, you know, I don't know what I was thinking. I, because I, I, I don't, I'm pretty much a law abiding citizen. And uh, so I, I, I said, you're right. And then I, and I said, if I, if I had, if he had been there, if I had gotten a ticket, I would have absolutely deserved it. And I would have. I, I would have deserved it if I, if I got a ticket. But what about, what about when things happen in your life that, that you, that you can't make sense of. If I'd got a ticket, I'm, it made sense. I deserved it, should have got it. But what about when things happen in your life that, that don't make any sense? What, when, what, what happens when circumstances are such that uh, you, can't, you can't find up from down, you can't figure out anything, and you're wondering if, if perhaps God has completely abandoned you in this? What, what happens when somebody hurts you so, so badly that, that you can't even... You're just like in a fog. You just can't believe that that much pain come into your life. What, what about when those kind of things happen in your life? Are, are, can you in those moments come to the place where you can say, God is still on his throne. God is still in control. I know that I can trust him. Today, we come to the second part of the vision of Daniel chapter 8. Now, if you were with us last week, you know that we walked through the first part of Daniel chapter 8. There are two, there are two uh, parts to the vision that Daniel sees in Daniel chapter 8. There is the, there is the vision of the, the, the ram and the goats in the first part. And in uh, the vision of the ram and goats that takes place in verses 1 through 8, its interpretation... Uh, takes place really specifically in verses 20 through 22. is where you find the interpretation. And we looked at that last week. It's, it's very uh, specific. It's very uh, detailed. And it's, it's an amazing passage of Scripture, an amazing uh, prophecy, as we look back and, and see the fulfillment of that uh, prophecy. The second part of Daniel's vision in chapter 8 is the vision of the small horn. And it is found in verses 9 through 14. So you can kind of look if, you look, if you look, if you have a Bible open, or if you, you know, have electronic version or whatever, you can kind of look and see how this breaks up in the chapter. The, the second part of the, the vision, the, the, the vision of the small horn, is in 9 through 14. Its interpretation is found in verses 23 through 26. So that's where you find the, the interpretation of it. As I said, the first part, if you are here last week, you know the first part, man, it's, it's amazingly uh, specific. The second part, while it, while it does contain details, 
uh, and it does contain specifics. It, to me, it doesn't, doesn't contain as many as the per- first part of the vision. In other words, in the first part of the vision, we're just told the ram is the Medo-Persian Empire. The goat is the Greek Empire. We're, 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 just, we're just told that. And the, and the, and the uh, conspicuous or the large horn that comes up on the goat, that's its first king, uh, who we know is Alexander the Great. And the, and, the, and the conspicuous horn, the first king, no sooner will he get control of his empire, build his empire, than he will fall, he'll, he'll, get, he'll be out of the way, and four other horns, four other leaders will rise up in his place. I gave you those last week. Um, But just so you know, it happened exactly as Daniel prophesied that it would. Uh, Alexander did come to the throne. He did build an empire, but no sooner did he build that empire than he died. And four of his generals took control of his empire. We know this from secular history, okay? Not only what Daniel's saying in Daniel chapter 8, but we know it from secular history. And we know that those four generals that took over the Greek empire were Cassander. I gave these to you last week if you were here. Cassander, who took over uh, most of Macedonia and Greece. Lysimachus, who took over Thrace and most of Asia Minor. Seleucus, who took over Syria and most of the Middle East. And Ptolemy, who took over Egypt. Those were the four generals who the, the Greek empire was dispersed to upon Alexander's death. Okay? This, this second part of the vision... This uh, verses 9 through 14 and then its interpretation uh, isn't as specific as the first part. Now, I know God has his reasons for why God does whatever God does. And and he has his reasons for why he gives us certain things very plainly and other parts not as plainly. But the second part deals with the the little or the small horn. And just because I say that it's, it's hard or it's not as clear as it is in the first part of the vision doesn't mean that it cannot be known. I think there are clues. I think there are ways that we can know. And we have the advantage of, of looking back through history and finding out exactly what all Daniel uh, spoke about that has been fulfilled. And, and not everything, by the way, if you guys know, not everything that Daniel spoke about has been fulfilled. There are still future prophecies coming, and we'll get to those uh, in, in, in the later chapters of Daniel. And we're moving in that direction. We're almost to chapter 9. Uh, so, so there are some still to be fulfilled, but we have the advantage of looking back. Remember, it was all future for Daniel. I know I've said this, but I keep reminding you, it was all future for Daniel. When he, when he wrote this, when he saw these visions, everything that he saw was yet to come, okay? We are 20, basically 2,500 years removed from when Daniel lived. And we have the advantage of looking back and saying, okay, now I can see exactly how that was fulfilled in the Medo-Persian Empire, exactly how that was fulfilled in the Greek Empire and Roman Empire, some of those other images that we've, that we've looked at. This one, we've got to work at just a little bit. I'm going to read this morning... Uh, 9 through 14, where he tells about that part of the vision, and then, and then we'll fast forward to uh, 23 uh, through the end of the chapter, through 27, because that's the part where he gives the interpretation for that. Daniel chapter 8, I'm going to start in, uh, in verse 9. Out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. It grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, 
and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of the transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. And then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply? While the transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled. He said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. And now uh, jump over to verse 23. In the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. And he will magnify himself in his heart. And he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes. But he will be broken without human agency. The vision of the evenings and mornings which has been told is true. But keep the vision secret. For it pertains to many days in the future. And then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. And I got up again and carried on the king's business, but I was astounded at the vision, and there was none to explain it. Daniel 8, 9 through 14, and 23 through really 26 is where the interpretation is. So I want to kind of get into this and see what, what, do we, what do we find out about this little horn? What, do we, what can we learn about this little horn? Well, one of the first things that we notice uh, in, in verse... Nine is that it says that he came forth, this rather small horn, uh, came forth out of them. You see that little phrase in there, came out of them? So the natural question then would be to ask. Remember, we're trying to, we're trying to decide who is the little horn, the, the small horn. I, I need to... It, who is the small horn of Daniel 8? Well, uh, verse 9 says he came out of them. So the natural question is, who is the out of them? We looked at it last week, but verse 8 gives us the answer uh, to that. Verse 8 uh, said, Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. Who is the male goat? Right. The Greek empire sim- was symbolized by the, the male goat. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. Who was the large horn? Alexander the Great. We know that historically, ladies and gentlemen. That's not just, uh, we, we know that that's a, a fact. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Who were the four horns? The four generals that took over Alexander's empire after he died. Are you with me? All right, you're, all right, good, come on. Goat, Greek, Greek, Greek empire. Horn, Alexander the Great. Horn is broken, four other horns rise up. We know historically, I just gave them to you, those four generals took over the empire. And so, to kind of follow that up then, at the, the, the horns toward the four winds of heaven, out of one of them, so there's the one of them. So we know that, that this, this small horn comes out of one of the four 
generals that was given part of the Greek empire. Does that make sense? We'll bring it up here in a second. You'll see it. Okay? We also told in verse 9 that he moves on or moves toward the beautiful land. Well, if you combine that with verse 11, which mentions the fact that he removed the regular sacrifice... And if you combine that with verse 24, where it says he will destroy mighty men and the holy people, it's pretty easy to see that the beautiful land is referring to the nation of Israel. Now, if you were here last week, you may remember I told you that from chapter 8 on, the, the, the emphasis of the rest of Daniel's book is really on the nation of Israel. doesn't mean it doesn't have application for us, but it has to do with Israel in, in the latter days and God's plans. God still has plans. I talked about that last week. You can go back and listen to that if you weren't here. God still has a plan for the nation of Israel because of the, the everlasting covenant that he made with them. So uh, the beautiful land is Israel. So l- let's see now if we can walk through some, verses 9 through 14, some of the description that we see of this small horn. You ready? Tyler's going to bring some of them up here. We're going to look. First... He comes from the line of one of the four generals that took over Alexander's empire. We just established that for verse 8 and 9. Second, it says he moves on the beautiful land. So he, he attacks, he, he uh, invades, takes over, takes control of Israel. Third, the text says there in that verse 9 through 14 that he stops, I think it was verse 11, we looked at him and go, he stops the regular sacrifice. In other words, the daily sacrifice that's part of the Jewish custom, um, all, all that thing that's part of the ceremonial service, uh, uh, sacrificial services that, that uh, God had established with the Jews as a sign of their faith in God and their, and, and their believing in him and trusting in him and his blood sacrifice that he would bring, this small horn stops the regular sacrifice. It also says that he tramples the holy place, which could mean uh, the temple in general, or more specifically, it could mean the place where the daily sacrifice occurred. He tramples it down. He, he, uh, he, he degrades it. He... Fifth, he magnifies himself to be equal with the commander of hosts. Notice the capital C, that's because it's under, understood that it means in some sense God, that he's that he is uh, magnifying himself to be equal with the commander of hosts. Sixth, it says that he, uh, he flings truth to the ground. In, uh, I think that was in somewhere in verse 13 or 14 or something like that, that he, he, he flings truth to the ground. So, so he, he disregards, disobeys the word of God making his own rules, setting himself up and deciding what he determined was right, disregarding God's laws that God had set in place. You got me? That's what we know about him. All right? He flings truth to the ground. All right, and then if we continue all these different... I told you, there, there is detail in this. There is description in this. Then as we move into the, the interpretation in 23 through 24, we also find this. He is insolent and skilled in intrigue. So he's... He's that. He's mighty in power, but not by his own power. Now, that could simply mean that, that, he, that his empire comes to him through no effort of his own. That, that he didn't build it. He didn't, he didn't really conquer anybody to, to become this, this king. That, that he obtained it some other way. Or it could mean that there's a satanic working here. And quite honestly, I suspect there's probably a little bit of, of both going on. It also says, and 
that he destroys to an extraordinary degree. So whoever this small horn is, he is, he is cruel, he is uh, heartless, he is destructive, and, and he destroys, the text says, to an extraordinary degree. He is shrewd and deceitful. He magnifies himself in his heart. So, so the guy is full of pride. He's, he's puffed up. He's, 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 he's all that. And then ver- number 12 uh, listed there, he will oppose the prince of princes. Notice how that kind of correlates with, with the commander uh, over in, in 9 through 14. In 23, 24, he will oppose the prince of princes. I mean, goodness, who does this guy think he is? God, that's who he thinks he is. And see that in a minute. Now, um, let me just say, uh, among those that have been students of the book of Daniel, uh, there are really only two, uh, possible, uh, interp- two, two possibilities of who the small horn is. Only, really only two possibilities. Almost everyone that studied the book of Daniel agrees with this. The small horn is either Antiochus IV Epiphanes or Antichrist. Now, the latter of those two, most of you have probably heard of. The former of those two, most of you have probably not heard of. And if you have never heard of Antiochus, it is because, sadly, too few churches do studies in the book of Daniel and or you are sleeping through your history classes. Because Antiochus Epiphanes was one of the most vile, one of the most wicked, one of the most evil, one of the most corrupt, one of the most barbarous and murderous rulers that has ever ruled the world or been in the world. Now, let me say this. There are solid Bible-believing men and women that are thoroughly convinced that uh, the small horn is, uh, in Daniel chapter 8 is Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes, and there are solid Bible-believing men and women who are thoroughly convinced that uh, the small horn in Daniel chapter 8 is Antichrist. And quite honestly, if you looked at that description as we read it and then walked through the details, and if you know anything, or especially if you're with us when we did the, the study in the book of Daniel a couple of years, I mean, Revelation a couple of years ago, a lot of that would have sounded very familiar to you. The truth is that description could fit either one of those uh, personalities, those persons, quite well. It could fit Antiochus. It could fit Antichrist. And in some sense, it does fit both of them. But it, it's... In my study, I've, I've come to the conclusion, and not me only, by the way. I mean, I'm not, not reinventing the wheel. There's a lot of other people that feel the same way about this. But I've come to the conclusion that in Daniel's vision, the small horn in Daniel chapter 8 uh, is actually Antiochus Epiphanes. By the way, uh, if you, you may notice that I keep saying the small horn of Daniel chapter 8. The reason I keep doing that is because... In Daniel chapter 7, if you guys remember, I'm sure you all do. In Daniel chapter 7, there's a little horn mentioned in Daniel chapter 7. You guys remember the little horn in Daniel 7? The little horn in Daniel 7 is clearly the Antichrist. Y'all with me? Clap your hands like that. Good job. All right. (laughs) Y'all are awesome. Y'all are troopers. I know this is tough. The, 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 The little horn in Daniel 7 clearly is the Antichrist. No question about it. So... Some people have concluded, well, if the Antichrist was the little horn in Daniel 7, then he must also be the small horn of Daniel 8. I don't think so. 
And as I said, others don't think so as well. For the simple reason that the little horn in Daniel chapter 7 clearly comes out of a revitalization of the ancient Roman Empire. Y'all remember that? Talked about the four kingdoms. And and the Antichrist comes out of a, a, a restoration or revitalization of the ancient Roman Empire. This small horn of Daniel 8 clearly comes out of the Greek Empire. Because he came from one of the, what? Four generals who took over the Greek Empire after all. Are you with me? So I believe that the, the, the small horn of Daniel 8 is Antiochus Epiphanes. Having said that, though, let me just say, that doesn't mean that there's not application of this to Antichrist. As a matter of fact, I believe that Antiochus Epiphanes... And I'll tell you more about him in a minute. But, but I, I believe that Antiochus Epiphanes is, in fact, a foreshadowing or a type of the Antichrist. I absolutely believe. And, and some of the things that he did are some of the same things the Antichrist will do in the last days. If you don't know who Antichrist is, he's, go back and listen to our Revelation series. Uh, it's online. You can listen to it. Um, but uh, the Antichrist who will rise up in the latter days, in the last days, uh, the very last days... Uh, he will do some of the very same things. So there are a lot of similarities between Antiochus Epiphanes and Antichrist. Okay? All right. Who was Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes? Well, first off, that wasn't even really his name. Uh, his, uh, his name was, I don't remember, it's like Melodates or something like that. Nobody knows him by that. But he came to the throne in uh, the... He was, he was part of the, I should say that he was part of the Seleucid dynasty. That sounds familiar? It's because the Seleucid dynasty came from Seleucus. Remember Seleucus? He was one of the four generals. Antiochus was a younger son of Seleucus IV, ruler of the Seleucid dynasty. Antiochus was a younger son. You with me? Because he was a younger son, he was not in line for the throne. There was an older brother, and then his older brother had children. But through a series of political moves and intrigue and even murder, including a child nephew, Antiochus came to the throne in 175 B.C. After he came to the throne, at some point, he moved on the nation of Israel and on Jerusalem. He was all of those things in that description. He sent in his, his uh, general, Apollonius, with 20,000 troops. And they did horrible atrocities to the Jewish people in Jerusalem. He ordered the, the, the stopping of the sacrificial system. He removed the high priest from his office and had him murdered. He eventually... And I know we're not Jewish, so it's hard for us to really, you know, it doesn't seem like that big a deal. But he eventually erected a, a, a statue of the Greek god Zeus in the temple, in the Jewish temple, and sacrificed a pig on the altar, which would have been the greatest affront to a Jew that could possibly be imagined. It would be like, it would be like us watching somebody uh, stomp on American flag and then set it on fire times a hundred. It'd be that much kind of emotion when they saw that. He had anyone who violated any of the rules he put in place, he had them immediately executed. 
He was vile and corrupt and wicked, and it was his intention to basically blot out Judaism and, and, the, and, the, and the worship of this, of this God that Antiochus fully intended to replace. By the way, to mention this, Antiochus, uh, believe it or not, I told you that wasn't his original name. You know where he got the name Antiochus IV? Get this. He took the name of the, of the child nephew that he murdered to get to the throne. He took his name. Oh, I, I'm Antiochus IV now. And Epiphanes was a title that he gave to himself. Now, Epiphanes basically uh, translate illustrious manifestation. It's basically how it translates it. In other words, what, what Antiochus was saying was, I am a physical manifestation, a revelation from the gods to men. He even, he even had uh, Theos Epiphanes, God manifestation, printed on, stamped on coins with his image on it. I mean, you talk about a guy with a serious God complex. This guy has got one. And as I said, what he did to the nation of Israel is, has been really almost unrivaled throughout all of history. He was wicked. He was, he was all of those things. Now, um, by the way, uh, Antiochus stopped everything, all the stuff in the temple, all that kind of stuff. Uh, he was eventually, the, his, his troops and everything were eventually defeated by a, na- a man by the name of Judas Maccabeus. Uh, the, the, the Maccabee brothers, family, rose up, got a following, and they overthrew. They threw them out of the temple, threw them out of Jerusalem, the, the Celestid dynasty, the Greeks. He threw them out of there, and they restored uh, where they rededicated, they first had to cleanse it. There's a lot of ceremony that had to go on. Then they rededicated the temple and restored uh, worship of the one uh, true God. Uh, by the way, because of that, some people have claimed that that couldn't possibly, that the small horn can't be uh, Antiochus because, you, did you remember that little phrase, I think it was in verse 25, that it says that uh, he will be, however it puts it, he'll be taken out without human agency. So some people say, well, that, you can't be Antiochus then. What you have to remember, what, or what you may not be aware of, is that Antiochus was not in Jerusalem when any of that happened. Antiochus was back in Syria on his throne. And uh, from historical reports, Antiochus died of natural, uh, I think we would say divine, causes. And a very horrible death from, from what I've been able to ascertain. So in other words, he wasn't... Uh, he wasn't overthrown by any human agent. He wasn't, he wasn't assassinated. He wasn't defeated in, in, uh, on the battlefield, killed on the battlefield or anything like that. God took Antiochus out. By the way, way, that event, y'all want, y'all, y'all, y'all gonna be, y'all gonna want to know this. That event where, uh, Judas Maccabeus defeated the Greeks, cleansed, rededicated, restored the worship service, that event is celebrated through the Jewish, to this day in the Jewish festival known as Hanukkah. That's where Hanukkah comes from. And as the story goes, when they went to, to uh, rededicate the temple, uh, when they went to light the, the eternal flame, there's this lamp, this eternal that burns all the time in the holy place. When they went to light it, Judas Maccabeus and all of his, his, uh, his group, when they went to light it, there was only enough oil consecrated still pure oil that hadn't been desecrated by, uh, by the Greeks. There was only enough oil for one day. And, and the lamp is supposed to never go out. 
And so, as the story is retold, as the Jews say, God miraculously kept the lamp burning for eight days without end until some more oil was purified and ready to be used. It was a process had to be done to dedicate it and be ready to be used. And God kept the, the lamp burning for eight days. That's why you see on a menorah candle, you'll see, uh, you'll see eight candlesticks and then usually a ninth one that will either be above it or below it. The eight represent the, the eight days of God's miracle in keeping the lamp uh, burning. And the ninth one, I assume, represents the fact that if, if it had been 100 days, the, the point is God is enough. God will provide enough. God is sufficient to give us everything that we need. So there you go. <clears throat> but the point is, uh, Antiochus is defeated. Uh, temple is restored. And that's the end of that ugly chapter in the life of the nation of Israel. Oh, there is one other detail, I guess, that we should deal with, shouldn't we? Um, do you remember in, uh, in verse 13, there's an angel that apparently is, is privy to this vision. Daniel's seeing this vision, and the angel's either in the vision and he's hearing it, or however it works out, this angel is listening to this, and you really get the impression in verse 13 that the angel just takes this as long as he can, and he can't stand it, and he, and he, and he just busts in, he just breaks in on the conversation, and I'm paraphrasing, but he says, he says, what the world? How, how long is this going to go on? How long is this guy going to be allowed to trample and desecrate the temple and, and trample God's holy people? How long is that going to go on? And then in verse 14, he receives an answer, possibly from Gabriel, since Gabriel had been speaking to Daniel earlier in, in the chapter. But he says in verse 14, he says, for, for uh, 2,300, I think it's of 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the holy place will be properly restored. Okay, here we go. There are two interpretations of the 2300 evenings and mornings. It either means 2300 24-hour time periods, okay? Evening and morning, evening and morning, evening and morning, evening and morning, 2300 24-hour uh, time periods, which works out to about uh, six years, a little over six years, six and a third year, some six years, 111 days, something like that. Or it means 1150 Mornings and evenings, or evenings and morning. You understand what I'm saying? So it could mean um, evening, morning, evening, morning, evening, morning. And when you get to 2300, you will have had 1150 mornings and 1150 evenings. It could be either one of those. Nobody knows for sure. I don't think anybody can, can say with absolute certainty which it is. And I don't know that it even matters except that obviously we want to make sure that we're accurate with the Word of God. Uh, those that, uh, that take the, the uh, longer date, the six, little over six years, they point to the time when Antiochus uh, came into Jerusalem. And they say that was right around six, a little over six years between the time then and the time he, uh, his army was thrown out. I kind of agree with Gleason Archer, Bible commentator Gleason Archer, Gleason Archer, who says that is the 23 morning evenings is, is probably the, the, the earlier or the shorter date, the little over three years, because we do know historically the dates. From the date that Antiochus stopped the sacrificial system in the temple to the date that uh, Judas Maccabeus rededicated the temple and started the service again was uh, just over three years. I assume the three years and 55 days. Either way, the point is, ladies and gentlemen, once again, God's word accurately predicts exactly what will happen, and it takes place exactly as God's word says it will happen. Now, the point 
Let's get to what does this mean for me? What is it besides a history lesson? What does that mean for all of us here today? For one thing, it means what, what I've been saying throughout this whole thing, that, you, that we can trust this book, that this is a book that we can build our lives on, that this is a book that is truth without any mixture of error, as, uh, as the Word of God says, that, and it's a book that we can, as I said, we can build our lives on this. We can, we can build our marriages on this. We can, we can build our, everything, uh, our salvation, all of it can be based on the truth of this Word. It also means that we can trust the rest of Daniel's prophecies, which we're going to see as we get on into the rest of the chapters that are still future. Some of them are still future for us. They're events that are still to take place. So far, we've looked at events that have taken place. We're going to be looking at events that are still yet to come uh, in Daniel's vision. And we can trust that if God was exactly right, predicting all those other things, then he's right about the other things. But, but what else does it mean for us? Let me say this, and we'll, we'll, we'll wrap this thing up. Antiochus was, as I said, as vile a leader, king, as there has been in the world from from all reports. God did not make Antiochus do what Antiochus did. Antiochus, of his own free will, chose to be as wicked and as evil and as corrupt and as murderous as he was. But because God is who God is, ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. Because God is who God is, God is always going to be ahead of of those who make decisions that are contrary to God's will. And so that he's always going to be able to ultimately work things out to come to the conclusion that is is his kingdom-focused, kingdom-aimed conclusion. God is always going to be able to do that because, because God is always going to be ahead of him. There is, the, there is this mysterious thing of the sovereignty of God and the free will of man mixed together. But somehow those things operate so that God can perfectly accomplishes the tasks that he has designed to accomplish so that the kingdom will work out exactly as God has said that it will happen. Now, what does that mean for us? I, uh, last week I gave you a BP squared that said history is really his story. And we, we've looked at that. We keep looking at these historical events. But I want to leave you this week with, with this idea. And it's, it's this. It's this. An unpleasant present doesn't mean an unplanned future. The events, the circumstances, the trials, the tribulations, the hurts, the heartaches, uh, all of that stuff that, that you and I go through at times in our life. And we do, we do go through it, right? Right? We don't, there's no sugarcoating it. We do go through, all of that stuff is an, an unpleasant present. And I don't mean that to sound trivial. But that doesn't mean that there's an unplanned future. That doesn't mean that God's like, oh, wow, I sure didn't see that coming. I didn't know, I didn't know he was going to leave her. I, I didn't know that that, that boss was going to get ticked off uh, and, and fire him. I, I didn't know that, that, that their car was going to break down and they wouldn't. I didn't know that. that you understand what I'm saying? It doesn't mean there's not an un, that there's an unplanned future. God is God, and God is ahead of every bit of it. So once again, we come back to this idea that I've already said before, but I'll keep saying it, ladies and gentlemen, until all of us really, really, really get it and really, really live, live in it. And that is this. God's got this. God's got you. He really does. Well, as we've seen today, Daniel saw a time of great adversity that was coming upon the nation of Israel. As Pastor Clay shared with us, in many ways, the adversity they faced under Antiochus mirrors what they will face during the tribulation period. 
It was hard for Daniel to see how countrymen have to go through so much evil. But through it all, we see that God is still on His throne. And as we'll see in future chapters, God is going to establish His kingdom and all of those who practice evil will be defeated. We're glad you spent some time with us for this week's Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our everyday lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh. But instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sunday mornings at 1030 at the Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone and everyone who is looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. I'm not the water, I'm not the bread, but I know the place where your soul is fed. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org.